Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. You may recall a couple of weeks ago when we had Will Leach on to talk about his new novel, How Lucky, I made a big deal out of the fact that summer was almost here, and how excited people are about that, because things are starting to feel kinda, sorta, semi-hemi-demi-normal again. Well, that feeling that summer is here is even more pronounced now, after a weekend where a lot of the country saw temperatures in the 90s, and the signs of a return to cultural normalcy are popping up all over the place. The NBA playoff arenas are packed with fans. Major League Baseball stadiums are on the cusp of reopening to full capacity. Concert venues and clubs are coming back online. And then there's movie theaters getting back in business, promising return to the sublime pleasure that comes from sitting in the air-conditioned darkness on a hot summer day or night and enjoying a brand new first-run feature film on a big screen with a booming sound system after smoking a massive fatty. Get your head in the right place to watch the flick. I mean, come on. That is the shit, right? Okay, so stick with me here. The movie that I'm planning to see for my first trip back into a theater is Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, which opens in theaters this coming Friday, June 11th. And that got me thinking about the guy who's here with us on this podcast, because this guy is connected to the movie version of In the Heights, and even more so to the original Broadway musical incarnation of In the Heights, and even more so to Lin-Manuel himself, who's one of this guy's closest friends, and to the show that Lynn made after In the Heights, a minor production that you might have heard of called Hamilton, for which this guy became, you know, like straight up fucking famous by playing the father of our country, George Washington. And here's the thing. I've been looking for an excuse to get this guy on the podcast because he's so smart and so thoughtful and just a great dude. And for some reason now, with In the Heights about to hit and hopefully lure a lot of our asses into those air-conditioned theater seats and sweep us all up in its magic... And with all this change in the air and cultural normalcy reasserting itself, but things in our national life still feeling so uncertain and precarious and fragile and unstable, I don't know, time just seemed right to bring him on. So here he is, my pal, Christopher Jackson. The state of our union has yet to be determined. A whole lot of people got to figure out who they're going to listen to, what they're going to believe, whether or not they're going to get a shot in their arm, whether or not they're going to risk this invisible virus that's you know jumping in and out of our noses and throats um damn get your shot y'all christopher jackson is a performing arts force of nature an actor singer musician composer freestyle rapper and burgeoning children's content progenitor he's a bona fide broadway blue chip stud whose credits include simba and the lion king on top of benny and in the heights and the first of America's George W's in Hamilton. He stars in a network television drama, Bull, on CBS, which just got picked up and renewed for its sixth season. He's been nominated for a Tony Award and won a Grammy Award for Hamilton. He's been nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award three times and won once for Outstanding Original Song for a children's series for his work on Sesame Street. All of which gives you a sense that Chris Jackson is connected in a deep way to a huge cross-section of the creative community. And in truth, that's one of the two big reasons why I wanted to have him on the podcast, to help talk through what that community, and especially people of color in that community, and most especially black people in that community, have been going through in this very tough, very disruptive, very traumatic period for people in the arts since both COVID and the post-George Floyd racial justice reckoning came along in quick succession. The other reason is because of Hamilton, which I really wanted to geek out with Chris about 
but which also gave him an extremely interesting perspective on this crazy fraught moment playing out in our politics right now. Chris and I have become friends over the past few years, and I know how seriously he took playing the part of George Washington and playing that part as a black man and how some of the extraordinary experiences that that role allowed him to have shaped his outlook on America, on race, on culture, on our democracy in profound ways. Also, some of the stories he has to tell, especially involving the time that he spent with Barack Obama, are really just fantastic tales. And so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've been waiting for, the pride of Mount Vernon, Christopher Jackson, right here on Hell and High Water. Second for just a millisecond, let down my guard and tell the people how I feel a second. Now I'm the model of a modern major general, the venerated Virginian veteran whose men are all lining up to put me up on a pedestal, writing letters to relatives embellishing my elegance and eloquence. But the elephant is in the room, the truth is in your face when you hear the British cannons go. There he is, George Washington himself, the Christopher Jackson here on Hell and High Water, Chris Tuffer. It's good to see you. How are you, man? It's great to see you too, man. I'm great. You know, I could talk to you for an entire podcast about Hamilton. I'm not going to because that would ignore too many important other things that are going on in the world in your life. But I played, I wanted to start with that just because I remember doing an interview with you once where you told me that of everything in the show, that particular set of bars were the ones that like rock your world most. Yeah. Yeah. They still do. Yeah. I still have like a sympathetic response when I hear it. My face will contort. I cannot stand still. My breathing pattern will start to settle right back into the one that I had to do in order to get all of those words out. That whole song would ring me out completely. Yes, right, totally. <laughs> and there's just that embellishing my elegance and eloquence. That whole thing is just so fucking tight and yeah. complicated. I mean, did you need to do like breathing exercises to learn how to say that thing? Because it's a, it's a, it's not tongue twister exactly, but it's a. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot of syllables. Yeah, there's a lot of syllables, and there's a lot of uh, emphasis on all of those syllables. <laughs> um, no, you know that was one of those uh, sections where I think Lynn just he just was right in the zone, and every single character had its own cadence, and he was so keyed into that. Much in the same way a writer would write a, a different speech pattern for a different character. You know, when you can really get inside of it, and there was no question. Lynn and I had spent our 10,000 hours together. We simply, he just knew what he wanted to hear out of me. And, and that's what came out. We're going to do a deep dive on Hamilton later in the podcast, but I've been wanting to get you on since we started. And um, we both obviously been in pandemic mode. And before, when we finally hooked up and said, okay, you're going to do this, come on the show. Great. Fantastic. So I look back at my, uh, my calendar. We had lunch in Tribeca, not that far from where my house is on February 15th of 2020. <laughs> How crazy is that? I knew it was close. It was close. I knew it was close. close. Yeah. So Man. it was like, I, I remember, I knew it was close too, but I couldn't remember, you know, my brain's a mush. I thought it could have been December. I don't know, but February 20th. So it was really less than a month yeah. before the whole fucking thing shut down and we all split down and we all went off our in our different directions. And yep. the craziest thing is, I mean, COVID, you know, was in the air at that point, but I don't think we probably 
ever talked about it. I think we sat there at that lunch and talked about 50 things. And I don't think oh, we man. talked about the fact there was a, I don't think we were even like, Hey, there's this bug in China that maybe is in, in Seattle or something that might right. have, a, you know, I don't even think right. we mentioned it. I don't, I don't remember mentioning that at all or hearing you mention it. It was a lot about the emerging, you know, election cycle yeah. and things yeah. that were just sort of happening. And I love that I, that I have a relationship with you and that I know you because when I see you on TV yeah. or I watch the circus, I feel like I'm seeing you. And I feel like I'm in touch with you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I know that there's a there's a separation there, but as crazy as life gets, you know, and I TiVo the circus and watch it, and I feel like I've checked in with you in one way or the other. So the occasional text is always like, oh no, we're we're living, you know, we're living lives outside of the work that is visual to the rest of the world. But it's great to see you. And there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight that you bring into the world. And I'm just glad that I get to absorb it like everyone else. Well, you're super nice to say it. And, you know, I miss you and I, it's going to be great to be able to see each other again at some point soon. But I, I feel like, you know, we've talked, you know, I've had various communications over the last 15, 16 months, whatever it is, but I don't really have a good sense of like what it's been like for you. I mean, I've checked in with you and you're like, I'm okay. We're doing fine. Like everything's all right. And I've read things that have been written about you because you have a show on CBS called Bull and you, and you, yeah, we're out in the world and you had some projects that were in the works that got delayed by COVID. But I want to kind of like, I've, I've done this for a little while. We started the podcast because when it started, it was like, okay, this is like an apocalyptic moment. And the apocalyptic moment was several things, the pandemic and then the George Floyd moment, and then the omnipresence of Trump. It's just like, I never felt more end timesy yeah. in my life. And people were really discombobulated by the combination of those things. And I wanted to kind of talk to people about like, what are you doing with that? Whether you're a politician or uh, a hip hop artist or a Broadway performer or a neurosurgeon or a, a, a genomics researcher, mm. like what is this doing to you? How's it changing the way you're processing? How are you working in the middle of this? Are you shut down? Are you lit up? Are you finding new avenues, whatever? And now we're sort of on the backside of it, like not fully as your yeah. cold open comment indicated, but I just, I want to get a sense of like, what has these 15, 16 months been like Portrait of the artist in the middle of a pandemic and now maybe coming out of one. Right. It was everything that everybody else went through. It was a lot of fear and uncertainty in the beginning. It was gratitude that, you know, I am currently working in television and hadn't been in the, you know, dependent on the theater. So many of my brothers and sisters got caught out there and, you know, ended up having to move back to Colorado or, you know, or Utah or whatever, because it's rare in our business. The last time that Broadway shut down, because of external forces was 9-11. And I was in Lion King, my first Broadway show at that time, and I was playing the lead. And there were two days of just like complete uncertainty and fear. And I felt a lot of similar emotions when things finally kind of really turned down and then completely shut down. But because I wasn't doing a theater show, you know, every day is every day. Yeah. And when you're doing eight shows a week, whereas with television, you know, you could go a whole week without going to work. And you kind of try to do your best to slide back into the home life and making sure that the kids are getting their homework done and getting them to school and getting them home and, you know, walking the dogs and running errands. All of those things, like down to the most simplest things, like going to the grocery store, felt as if you were taking your life into your own hands. We live in a part of Westchester that was very close to one of the first sort of publicized cases of COVID and a serious case in that the gentleman... Uh, was at a synagogue and then you know a few days later he's on life support or or it seemed that way i I don't want to uh miss sort of misquote the situation but it was very very difficult and it was a gripping kind of paranoid experience and then things started to ease and then my in-laws happened both 
to get COVID. And so it was putting on the hazmat, the, you know, the poor man's version of a hazmat and bringing them groceries and leaving them at the door and then being careful not to take the elevator, but go up the stairs and go back down the stairs and, you know, do I was doing what everybody else was doing. Unfortunately, what I wasn't doing was creating. And fear is a big, um, you know, it's one thing when you're worried about the landlord knocking on your door for rent. It's another thing when you're sort of living in this mortal state and constantly being reminded of how fragile life is. And then fast forward into the spring, into the summer, and now we're once again experiencing all of these lynchings on our phones and on television. And our kids are home, so they're seeing the news. And so now we're having the conversation in a different light. And we're having to deal with just the inherent trauma that comes with when your child, in, you know, inadvertently independent of you, on their phone sees this man with his knee on the back of, of, of George Floyd's neck. And how, how do you make sense of that? How do you rationalize that? How do you explain that? And how do you then help them get to sleep at night? I, fe I feel as if we've all aged so much in the last, like, you know, 18 months. And it continues. The fast forward through all of that is that, you know, we did go back to work. Our relatives did recover. Yeah. Um, we, we, we've lost people throughout this, you know, I've lost friends throughout this whole ordeal, some to COVID and some not just as a happenstance of life. And so the process of how we kind of get to the, the grieving part, to the community part, to all of the, the people that keep us emotionally supported and sustained, you just kind of bear down all those relationships and make time to pretend as if you can't go see people, yeah. <laughs> you know, now that the feeling is back that perhaps we will very soon, you know? It's been tremendously educational in that uh, you get a real good sense of how people are perceiving the world and how that perception then affects you and affects your children. That's so, a it's a big thing. So you mentioned at the beginning, you said most of your career was Broadway. Yeah. You know, it was musical theater. So, you know, you said you were glad you were not, that was not your bread and butter at the point when this happened, that television can wait, right? Right. You know, there's a lot of people who are employed by Broadway, way more people than you imagine. The ecosystem of Broadway is very large. Sure. And- a lot of people did have to, you know, move back home with their parents. I mean, adults, people yep. we know who are not like 18 year olds, 22 year olds. I mean, like people who are like middle, like yeah, kids mid -life. Are, people in their thirties, you yeah. know, who, who are, had to move back. Yep. Partly they moved back because they wanted to be with their parents during the pandemic. And, you know, there was partly a, a family unification element to it, but also it was partly, I can't really afford to stay in New York city right. if my livelihood shut down. And I think that for those guys and gals, there's a, like, it was a little bit of a mortal dread of like, Will I ever work again? You know, and they, yeah, I, I think I will at some point. I mean, this is not going to last forever was in people's minds. But the question of would it be six months, a year, two years, three yep. years? How long will this be? I mean, did you think for the Broadway community that you're still very much part of, even though you're not actively in a Broadway show right now, is that a sense of what that trauma has been like? And, and whether people right now, what, like the, the notion that Broadway is their date set, right, for a reopening, um, is that... The emotional kind of roller coaster of that. How is that going to, do you think, affect the way that Broadway operates now? And does it give people a sense of like that this thing that was had not shut down has like been solid and stable for a really long time? All of a sudden, is it like, well, man, this is tenuous in a way. And it's, you know, changes whether people are feel confident enough to make a career out of that in the future. I mean, I just wonder what the long-term effects of it will be like for having shut down that industry for yeah. an extended period and threatening to shut it down for even longer. There's a real interesting parallel as you're sort of laying all of those things out. Like I'm a black Broadway performer. Uh, yeah. 
So the same questions that I'm asking about whether or not I'm going to actually have gainful employment are the same ones that I'm asking about whether or not I can survive a traffic stop. You know what I mean? I mean, when you really uh, like it smarts in the same kind of way, because Broadway is a very, very competitive and unpredictable business. It asks of you your whole self for a time that you're allowed to give your whole self. And then you've got to go regroup when that experience ends and find another one or find another avenue. But everything as a performer that we are doing when it comes to stage work is completely dependent upon an audience being able to sit in the same room together. (laughs) And the margins in a Broadway show, you can't have 50% capacity. Yeah, I I remember reading this series of tweets where some politician, Republican politician in in Staten Island was, was haranguing the CDC and whatever, doing that whole Trump speak, you know, BS about, you know, well, why don't you open up to 50%? And this is a woman who was running for citywide office at the time. I, don't, I believe maybe city council. And the comments were just so, were, it was just so hysterical because we're sitting there telling you like, you don't know anything about the theater, but you want to be in New York city government. And it's the biggest industry in the city. You should know that a Broadway show can't operate. The margins are so paper thin that I've been in shows myself that were at 85% and they closed yeah. because they couldn't make a profit you know, for a sustained profit. And then as a black man, how many, how many examples have to be given and laid out? How long does it have to be said? There's no satisfaction to be found in any kind of political arena. And now I think that that goes for Broadway and especially for, for black folks. It's just a matter of folks just paying attention. Yeah. You know what it is like black is black, white is white. The sun comes up in the morning. It rises in the East. It sets in the West. There are just things that describe behaviors and patterns of behaviors, and you have to pay attention to them to understand them. And then in understanding, hopefully it will change, you know, the way we perceive things. And I was absolutely looking through both of those lenses all at the same time. It's like the perfect storm of this is the trial by fire and you have to withstand it. But knowing that that fire purifies and gives you a greater understanding and a greater sense of purpose and of direction. And then once, you know, that green light, turns on, then we go. So you were confident throughout like that bull, right? Bull is your show on CBS, right? Yep. You were confident that bull would like, you were filming, like actively filming when the pandemic hit. We were in the course of filming. I happened to be off two days prior to the shutdown. My makeup artist contracted COVID and tested positive for it the day after they stopped shooting. Whoa. So at a certain point, my concern was, had I been exposed to, you know, well, first of all, had, was she going to be okay? She was, but was I exposed? And so I'm sleeping in the family room. I'm nervous, you know, for a few days, but I, I got the call. It was not unexpected. And again, because things were just, you know, there was an acceptance that things were going to be done for a while, but that was any worry that I had about providing for the family or whatever was, was supplanted by the fact that we just needed to be able to stay alive and we could do that for a time. And then like everyone else, I figured there'd be a time to consider all of those things and worry about all those things later. But the announcement at the time was we're going to shut down now and then we're going to see, we'll figure the rest of it out. So that's what happened. You mentioned the George Floyd, you mentioned in the context of your kids. And I I wonder just as a, I mean, there's, there's one thing that's absolutely and obviously true, which I think is that when George Floyd was executed in public view or in video, um, the fact that we were all home 
and locked down and, and living through screens and locked in on yeah obviously amplified the the impact of that yes i mean it was a it was a dramatic i mean but even by the standards of police shootings for which we see video i mean it's like at the extreme of like what could look like something that there's really no ambiguity about like we see a lot of police footage sometimes it's ambiguous sometimes it's not but that was just like okay this is like we're yes we are witnessing a lynching right here right yes. as you said as you called it and i think the fact that people were home and living the way they were living amplified the effect of it and the impact of it. And it was part of why it created that moment. Yeah. The thing that I, th- I wonder about and whether you have a thought about is whether, I mean, I imagine on the other side of that, that in a world where we weren't locked down, that the arts community, the art, the world of, of entertainment, the world of musicians and I don't want to say celebrities, but I'm trying to like use a... Mm-hmm. People who are politically conscious who make art. Public facing people. There was obviously those people all said stuff. They had, they put stuff on their Instagram and they put stuff on Twitter or whatever. And that, I'm not demeaning that in any way, but I wonder whether in, in a world where we weren't locked down and those same kind of protests had spread, whether there would have been a more of a kind of direct response by the world of arts and particularly by the world of, of black artists that would have been, you know, I, I imagine, you know, benefit concerts and all kinds of stuff that might have happened. Some of that stuff happened in a virtual way, but I just, I wonder whether, whether you think that potentially the, the impact of it was amplified by our circumstances, but another way that kind of the, some of the responses that it might have generated were tamped down by our circumstances. You see what I'm saying? Folks got out on the street. They ain't give a damn about COVID. Yeah. But we've been organized since the sixties. Yeah. I've never been one to quite understand how anybody thinks that we go into like seasons of protest. Of course, everything was amplified because we were home and we, it was concentrated because we were home, but it was concentrated more for white folks who weren't paying attention to it to begin with. Yeah. Black folks are already out in the streets. Yeah. Black Lives Matter, you know, folks in our company were trying to do stuff back in 2014, 2015, 2016. We were talking about this thing, you know, but you've talked about it forever as well. Like, no, this wasn't no surprise. Activism didn't just start because everyone was locked in. Everyone's had their phones. We've had cell phones since what, 2000? I mean, like in the iPhone came out, what, 2009, 2010? Like everybody's been plugged in. But Twitter and Instagram is not activism. Being in the streets and organizing in person, that's activism. Yeah. Everything else is commentary. And the problem with social media is that it flattens out. It's like a, it's like a camera filming a golf tournament you don't ever see a hill everything's just green and flat you know twitter gives everyone the same amount of influence to the one person who's reading it at a time right you can have 300 400 a million followers it doesn't mean that your that your opinion is of any more import or that you're actually contributing to the the discourse it just means that you have a lot of followers and they're all reading that flattened out expression of something you know i mean case in point Oh boy, in the in the Oval Office, or he used to be in in the Oval Office. How powerful is he right now? Because he doesn't have a Twitter account. Yeah. If you're really that great and that effective, but you can't get on Twitter or Facebook, and you're mad about it, and you'll sue. But if you don't have, if you don't are not any more of an effective communicator than that, then I think people need to examine why the hell they thought you were powerful to begin with. When you can spend a million dollars and buy five million followers, because <laughs> we all know that's a very real thing. You know, and, and then judge it by a binary election. There's two people to vote for. And we all know how all of those numbers work out. So my point is, is like folks have been talking on social media and they're going to continue to talk on social media. But social media is interesting to read when you're on the toilet. 
or to amplify something that someone is doing that's worthy of amplifying, right? That's all. I like cat memes too, but it ain't that important. Chappelle was on uh, Fallon the other night and he said that Twitter is a bathroom wall. Yeah. Um, Ch- Ch- Chappelle, Fallon said to him, uh, do you, you're not on social media. Are you? I follow you on social media, but you don't post very much. You haven't posted on Twitter since 2012. And Chappelle said, Twitter's a bathroom wall. And why would I want to share all my thoughts on a bathroom wall? In a shitty dive bar. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? With the puke, the, with the puke on the floor. That's and, it. You'll and, see everything. Yeah, and no context whatsoever. <laughs> it's, it is true. And it does raise some questions about Trump. You know, you guys did uh, the, the Hamilton people. You guys did a, a fundraiser with Biden, I think, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the campaign in October yep. 2020. You know, you're a politically engaged person, uh, someone who cares a lot about the country. Sure. How did you find it? I've asked citizens this, people who are politically engaged, people who are politically kind of switched on about like what their experience of the election was like, because even before COVID, we all thought this was going to be the most consequential election of our lifetimes. Everything's on the line. It's existential, the stakes here, right? And then you had COVID, which amped all of that up even further. But one of my questions, because we were out there, you know, like yeah. trying not to get COVID, but trying to right. still cover it. Right. Did it feel different as a citizen? not just as a citizen, but as Chris Jackson citizen to have this, here's this incredibly urgent election that I can't really engage with in the way that I would normally engage with an election. Cause you're the kind of person who would have been doing all kinds of stuff. No question that you couldn't do in this context. Yep. I would have on my own dime gone out and campaigned against that man. You know, I, I like our two party system. I like the idea of it. I don't understand I do understand it because I'm in show business and I feel like when I watch political news, I'm watching a bunch of folks trying to act who really don't know what the hell they're doing. You know, what I mean, even, you know, like watching someone like Senator Cruz, who's just the worst, worst actor in the world, just judging him on the merit of his performance on a daily basis is so cringeworthy. It's terrible. And the problem is, is that all of these cats are exactly the same way. It was never really a choice with any other candidate. You could have had at least a principled argument if there were issues to argue about. I want to play one little thing here just because one of the things that was great about this, everything got shut down in the course of this time. And we had all this stress and we had all this uncertainty and we had all this. I think that one of the things you were saying before, the thing that was rolling around my head was that one of the things that came out that I still think we're all coping with, and I think we're going to be coping with for a long time is that what has happened in the last 15 months, the combination of COVID and the other things that played out and continue to play out because of the craziness in our political system mm-hmm. is just the sense of fragility. There's a book about political theory, that this title, which is everything that was solid melts into air. And it felt like in the course of this period that everything that was solid melted into air and everybody is left in the state of like, wow, things are a lot more fragile, a lot more contingent than we thought they were. So we're all grappling with all of that. And one of the things that was, you know, everyone's now watching TV all the time. And, you know, there's some things that were like loaded in the shoot. And so we got to see those things. And a lot of us went back and watched stuff that we hadn't watched for a long time. Watched, mm-hmm. went back and watched The Wire again for the first yeah. time in like right. years and years. It was great. <laughs> and I, I was just, not that I forgot how great it was, but man, is it great. Yeah. But occasionally something new would pop out. And, you know, the fact that Hamilton uh, was on Disney Plus, that was like a big thing for people last 4th of July, you know, that came out. Yeah. The other thing that came out that had to do with you was the Freestyle Love Supreme doc. And I want to hear a little Chris Jackson Freestyle Love Supreme. And I want to talk about this a little bit because for Diana, my wife and I, who had gone to see Freestyle Love Supreme like 147 times, not literally, but (laughs) maybe like 12. When the doc came out in the middle of the pandemic, it was like one of those things we kind of like reached out to and like held on to for dear life. We're like, oh God, this makes us feel like we still have some connection to our pre-pandemic lives. Uh, So let's just look quick. Chris Jackson Freestyle Love Supreme. You can hear that tape player going all night. Even though the volume's blowing, you re 
caught it right Cause that's the crazy way that tape players always go When you're recording your favorite mixtape show hey, Your mixtape is what I know about home In my bedroom mixtape so like that was just a little <laughs> bit of, of something i found on the internet which is like you know i mean the freestyle screen is different every single time you guys did it yep so this is a thing you know you guys play a game an audience member stood up and said the word mixtape and anthony threw mixtape to you and you made that up out of yeah nowhere. yeah I, and and so just i just want you to talk a little bit about like a first the experience of like was it cool to see that doc come out in the middle of the pandemic and be reminded that you guys had just finished a broadway run of this thing that was special to you and talk about the ways in which freestyle love supreme was special to you first and foremost continues to be we've been doing freestyle for i guess 17 years now it's something that frightens the hell out of me every time i get on stage and it's the most invigorating thing that i do it informs you know, without Freestyle of Supreme, Heights wouldn't be major motion picture right now. It wouldn't have been, you know, a successful Broadway show and national tours wouldn't be in all the high school. It wouldn't exist. Hamilton wouldn't exist. Like, Lynn's a prolific writer. But the the essence of what we do in Freestyle of Supreme is, is we go play jazz for an hour and a half. And we've done it all over the world. And we've done it in success. And we've done it in obscurity. And we've, we fail on stage all the time. But it's the form of it. And the way that it's put together allows us to fail. You don't really notice it. And we don't really notice it either because we're tumbling through this show and we're, we're making these songs up as we go. And we're connecting with an audience that's probably not seen anything like it before. It's made to be live and in a live theatrical setting. Uh, and to answer your first question, like, yeah, it was crazy to see myself at, you know, <laughs> at 26 with a bunch of kids that were even younger than me and... I'm, you know, going through from the moment that we sort of really did our first gig, a real gig in Scotland at the Edinburgh Festival with a six week old baby at home. Um, it was crazy, but just one of the most profound experiences. It allowed me to, you know, deepen the relationships that ultimately led to Benny and in the Heights and Washington and in Hamilton. And God knows what else we'll end up getting into as we move through this space. But like, it gave me my tribe, you know what I mean? Like these guys are, are my brothers and there's still a lot more Freestyle Love Supreme to be found. Freestyle Love Supreme is on Hulu. You got to go check it out. I mean, anybody who hasn't seen the, it's actually kind of be cool to see the the doc before you actually had a chance to see the show because mm. like, I mean, I think it'd be a, a, an interesting sequence for us. It was, you know, we'd seen the show a bunch of times and then got to watch the doc, but um, it's a good time to actually take a break because you just were talking about In the Heights and, and a little bit of your history. And so we'll take a quick break and we'll come back after we sell some soap flakes for this show because we are a commercial enterprise here at Helen High Water. We'll do that, run some ads, come back and then talk a little bit about the career of Christopher Jackson on Helen High Water. Hey, sports fans, if you are someone who enjoys Hell on High Water and you are interested in understanding the storylines that are shaping modern life, and I mean, who isn't? Big storylines like the financialization of everything, the world in disarray, and cutting-edge advances in the world of science and technology, then you are going to love and find absolutely indispensable The Recount's newest podcast, The News Items Podcast with John Ellis. Every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m., John and his brilliant co-host, Rebecca Darst, Break down news items from three categories, geopolitics, finance, and science and tech. John Ellis writes one of the very best newsletters in journalism. I'm talking about, like, I get a lot of newsletters, and most of them wash right over me. This one sticks. 
It's also called News Items, and he's teamed up with Rebecca, who is a veteran financial journalist and someone who just takes a little bit of John's edge off. If you want to feel a little bit smarter, or maybe even a whole lot smarter every day, and come away with a better understanding of the forces that are changing and shaping and transforming our world, then you owe it to yourself to listen to John and Rebecca and the News Items podcast. Plus, on most days, those two brilliant people have a bunch of other brilliant people who come on, heavy hitters like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, Jim Cramer from Business TV, Jill Abramson, Steen Jakobsen, all kinds of great folks. So subscribe to the News Items Podcast with John Ellis now. And we are back on Hell and High Water with Christopher Jackson. In the Heights, the movie's coming out. Uh, in the Heights, the, the Broadway show is a big deal for Christopher Jackson. Let's listen to Chris. Let's, let's, let's hear the original Benny in, in the Heights. There it is. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so in the Heights, man, you've been in Lion King, which was really your first thing on Broadway, right? Yep. But in the Heights is how you met Lin-Manuel Miranda, number one. Yep. And number two, like, I mean, I don't know. What was Lion King more important than in the Heights or was it hell, the Heights more hell important? No. In, hell no. Hell no. No, right? In okay. the Heights was more important than him. Like I didn't want to I didn't want to say something dumb. I thought in the Heights was more important, but I didn't want to like go I didn't want to get over it my It was skis. more important to me because it was the first real important work experience that was joyous it was a joyful experience for me yeah. i learned how to be a, a leader i learned how to be a good co-worker i understood the business because we had incredible producers that were forthright with me and explained things to me so that i could have a better sense and perspective of how shows get built and how shows work and how they run and what it takes to get them to run and what it takes to appeal to audiences it, it it's it's always an education when you get to do a Broadway show, but when you get to develop it, you know, I worked on it from 2002 to when we opened off Broadway in 2007 and then later at the Richard Rogers Theater. So it was a, a long process right. to be involved in. And so to have been fortunate enough to help craft a character yeah. or at least be amused for it for Kiara and for Lynn was, was real, real special. I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this question 10,000 times, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I mean, really meeting Lynn kind of changed your life, right? I mean, I yeah. mean, I mean not kind of changed your life, changed your life. Yeah. Tell the story of your first meeting. Well, the story is pretty simple. I, I A friend of mine had met Lynn and, and Tommy Kale and Bill Sherman, and the three of them were still very sort of nascent creators. And we we met in the basement. A friend of mine told me about these guys and said, you got to come meet them. You got to meet them tomorrow. And then you're going to audition the next day. I was like, it's a pretty insistent friend. And she was, <laughs> she knew exactly who she was matching me up with. I met Tommy and I met Lynn and it was in the basement of the drama bookshop there on 40th street. And I walked in and I'm looking at these dudes and all of them are, they look like teenagers. <laughs> Their looks, uh, <laughs> betraying the IQ points that were shared between the three of them. They're, they're really smart guys. And Lynn handed me a piece of paper. He did this little section of a rap uh, of a, a tune that at the time was in the show that was all about these two uh, friends meeting in Highbridge Park, playing the dozens and about to hit, you know play some handball. Just a regular old pedestrian kind of day. 
But man, it was, I heard it and learned it instantly because it just worked. Yeah. It's as if Lynn knew I was the guy for that role. And from that moment on, we just vibed. It's seamless. I, to be around guys that are so willing to be creative, right? To, to not walk in the room with all of these fears or worries or concerns about perception and really just about considering expression and finding creative ways to do the expression. It does all the work for you. Um, and that's, that's what I found with these guys. Is it weird that the movie's going to come out and you're not Benny? No, cause Benny for me is 12 years ago. Well, I know you aged you out. You know what I mean? Like I aged, I aged the hell out of that a long time ago. We I didn't grow mean, now. <laughs> but here's, but here's what I mean by that. I didn't mean, I literally, I didn't mean like you were up for the part and they gave it to somebody else. I mean, oh, you yeah, had no, aged no. out of the part. That, that was my point. Yeah. My point was not so much that, but that, you know, the reality, you know, like the cast album exists, but you know, if the movie's successful, it will be the iconic, it will be the thing that people, you know, on in perpetuity that people will remember. And sure. I'm more asking about the emotional thing of, yes, you recognize intellectually that you've aged out of this part. You could not play it in the movie. Yeah. But is it emotionally tough to imagine that a movie that could be watched by people for generations, that a part that is really yours is now being played in, in maybe the most lasting medium by someone else the emotional response i have from it existing in the world as a film yeah. is gratitude because i got to create something and i did a good enough job that when they went back and looked at this script and the idea of what in the heights was that they believed enough and cared enough about this character to make him even better it's just not very often that you get a chance to establish legacy things right like you know we used to circle up before every show. I used to lead a, a, a circle before every single show that when I was doing it. And the one thing that I always wanted to stress to all of the folks that are in the show to remember right before we went on stage is that if we do our job the right way, no one will walk out of the theater the same as the way they came in. And if we do our jobs the right way, then this show is going to be performed in every high school across the country or every small community theater or small professional theater. And it's going to give a whole lot of folks who look like us, who didn't have an opportunity to be in a show that they actually gave a damn about are now going to be able to have the exact same experience that we're having tonight on a Broadway stage. Yeah. And damn it, that ain't happened. Yeah. And now we've got a movie and now you've got the incredible John Chu who makes the most spectacularly visual movies in the game right now. Yeah. He's just talented at that. You got Kiara taking us and, and Lynn taking another pass at a show that already won the Tony, you know, and you're in it. You have a little cameo. I'm in it. I'm in it. It's juicy cameo. and I love it <laughs> because I'm in it with Lynn. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I love the fact, you know, that, that's my man. So, um, have you seen it? Have you seen the finished product? Have it. Have it. Okay. Uh, I have the link, Yeah. but I have been a little, I'm, I'm going to watch it tonight or tomorrow. I, um, you bet a little what? We lost a we lost a, a sister oh. from in the heights during the pandemic. And we were never able to we weren't able to see her before she went. It wasn't to COVID. Um, but you know, the last time that I saw her, or last time we spoke was following a a um a recording session for the movie. We'd seen her in a scene and it was the most wonderful, heartwarming thing. And I called her up and I said, Doreen. It's me, and I just saw the scene, and I saw you, and you sounded amazing, and we, you know, and it's it's COVID, so we're, it was early COVID, and we hadn't had a chance to see each other in a long time. And I said, if I never say anything else to you, I just want to tell you that I love you. I just need you to know that. 
I'll talk to you soon. And then we played phone tag. And then more COVID happened. And then she, uh, she succumbed to uh, uh, just a tragic moment. And I, I mean, just real talk, I just haven't been able to, to I'm, I'm scared to see it. Man, just yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like, sorry. I'm sorry to hear that happened. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, condolences. Thank you. Um, but I'm going to watch it. I am going to watch it because yeah. I have to, you know, yeah. I want to, but I just, uh, it's, it's taken me a minute to kind of make peace with, with missing my sister. You know what I mean? Totally. I totally do understand. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm looking for, I have to say, it's like one of those things there are, um, that there's not been that many, uh, part of the discombobulation of this period has been kind of losing track of like what's on deck. You know, in terms yeah. of like, what are the, what's coming out with, you know, what's, uh, you know, one of these series that I care about, when are they going to be making their returns? When am I going to see the characters I love again? And on the movie front, probably because of the disruption in distribution, it's like, you're kind of like a little bit, it's interesting that certain movies have somehow managed to kind of cut through and they're like, oh, is that coming out in the movie theater or is that going to be on streaming or is it going to be on both? I don't know, right. but I want to see that. Right. Right. And in the Heights is kind of broken through that way. Right. Oh, I'm glad, um, man. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, I, just in terms of consciousness, I think sure. people are like, oh, it's it's coming in, you know, it's coming in June. Like, we need uh, something to feel good about right now. We just need our moments to to make us feel good. Yeah. And that's going to be one of them. The other thing you were going to be working on was Tick, Tick, Boom, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you were, is that, did that, did that happen? That, <laughs> that got delayed. Happened. That got delayed because of did. COVID, right? It did. And they came back right around all the time that all of the productions in the city kind of came back. And then there was a bunch of scheduling and- and it wasn't just about like showing up on a Thursday for, you know, or, or coming in for two weeks and doing a role. It was, you got to quarantine for eight days and Ugh. I'm in the middle of shooting a series. So that was all, and I'm getting tested every day and we're doing all that, all that already, but every company had their own sort of protocols that you had to, to right. follow. So it made getting on set and doing what Lynn originally asked me to do a little tricky, but you know, true to form that brother, he was like, okay, you can do this. It's a one day thing. I don't care. I just want you in the, in the movie. And right. so I said, all right. So I, I got off work on one set and went to the other one. And, you know, I'm going to do anything and everything I can to support my brother. That's, that's quite literally what it is. It ain't for the money or for the clicks on Twitter. I just like being around people that I love and I like get that my best friends make stuff. You know what right. I mean? Like we get to make stuff together. Right. It's, it's a musical by Jonathan Larson called Tick, Tick, Boom, which, you know, Lynn is not surprisingly post Hamilton is like everywhere doing everything all the time. And it's yeah. just, you know, indefatigable and has all this energy and is out there doing stuff. And I love that this is like another cameo, right? Yeah. It's essentially for you. Tick, Tick, Boom. Sure. But the reason I raise this, I think it's great. I mean, it's kind of cool that like the idea that you guys, that that is the, it's like, well, if I'm doing a movie, of course you're going to be in it. Like yeah. we're going to carry this relationship forward and you're not always going to be the lead in every movie I make. But here's the thing is we're going to, the way our collaboration works is there's going to be collaborations. There's going to be little, little things and big things and yep. day long things and month long things and years long things. And it's like, they're just all little fragments of how like durable and important the relationship is in every way. But in some ways, the small things that you're going to be, you got to be here for a day, dude, to yeah. be in this thing. Right. Yeah. Even if it's not. You know, it's a cameo, but who cares? It's like, yeah. you're going to be in it because you're, we're, we have each other's back. We have the same manager. So it, that makes it a little bit easier, but like, it's just real. Like, you know, I talk to his kids on FaceTime a whole lot. <laughs> I'm Theo Chris. Like, that's just what it is. It's yeah. love and it's trust and it's, you know, enthusiasm and, you know, lends a lot of things, but he is absolutely loyal and just unrelenting in wanting to have collaborations and collaborations that you can trust you know you can get into a lot of different rooms man but if you're in the wrong room 
yeah. trying to do creative work, man, it's just, it's the worst. And so we built a room a long time ago, thanks to Tommy. And, and yeah, I, it's one, it's a door I love keep, uh, going through, you know? So when you were a kid growing up in Cicero, Illinois, Cairo, Cicero? Illinois, Cairo, no. you were in Cairo. You were no. in Cairo. K- we Cairo, call sorry. it Cairo. I know. I always fuck this up. It's I went spelled to... Cairo. It's all I right. <laughs> no, I went to... Here's the thing. Look, okay. So first of all, I grew up in LA. All right. Number, one. number two, I went to Northwestern. And so yeah. like downstate... Anything south is, of is, Champagne is is just gone. Right. <laughs> right. So I sold the way... Like I fucked this one up before. Cairo. It's all right, I, man. It's all I, right. No, no. I, I mean, I look, I, I get it wrong. I got that one wrong. I get it, but there's Cicero also in Illinois, yeah, which yeah, is why is. I sometimes get those confused and yeah. neither one of mine up really Very different place. But you're down, but that downstate though, right? Yeah. Like yeah. downstate. So kid growing up downstate, but you went to school for, for the arts, right? Yeah. That was yeah. your thing, right? So you dreamed about this thing from childhood. This is what you always wanted to be? I don't think so. No. Uh, to be honest with you, I wanted yeah. to play ball. Okay. I, I did want to play ball like every other little boy wants to do. Yeah. And at the time that I found acting, I just wanted to get the hell out of my house. There was a tenuous, you know, upbringing with my stepfather and the social construct in the South in the late 80s, early 90s, being a, a child of a, of a white mother and a black father. It, there was just so many different things. I was just, I went from being completely secure and completely happy if I was out playing ball or under the tutelage of, you know, my pastor at a church function. But the moment that I got home, I have my mother, who's the most incredible woman in the world, having to be married to a dude who just didn't know how to be happy, you know? Right. And oftentimes I, I bore the brunt of that unhappiness and that confusion and, and all of that stuff. And so my mom was a teacher at the high school that I attended and one of the other teachers who had just come in, she had her doctorate in acting and she was a special ed teacher, but she knew that I performed. I always grew up singing. I wasn't afraid to stand up in front of people, mm. but she handed me a copy of The Crucible. She was like, just read this. You've never read a play before. Read this play. I promise you, you will not regret it. And the woman saw something in me that I didn't even see because acting wasn't something that I thought was a real thing. Making records was maybe the dream yeah. of mine, yeah. but, but the idea of standing on stage or being on television, I just didn't like, I didn't see it. And so once I read that, yeah. and then I, you know, we didn't have a formal performing arts program, a theater program in our school, but we did have speech teams. So we would go on these weekend tournaments and then we would perform various things. And I found I had a lot of success. I went to state the first year and, and then went to state the second year and just on a lark got a notice for this school in, in New York City that taught musical theater performance. And my mother at the last minute said, you know what, grab your music, grab your suit, let's drive to Chicago, let's audition. So we show up on a snowy, you know, February afternoon at, at the, I think it was like the Hyatt in downtown Chicago. And I went in and sang some enchanted evening and, and, <laughs> and then it was, it was all really, really exciting. I almost didn't like accept the their acceptance because I got the call from one of the bursars there was like, are you gonna use student housing? And I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And she was like, you've been accepted. And I was like, oh, I'm going to New York now. It's on, <laughs> I'm going. So I got here a week after my 18th birthday and, yeah. and studied for two years and then here we were. You know, you've done the musical theater, you're on a television show, network television show, you know? Yep, different kind of um, TV. Yeah. yeah. You've, been, you've been in movies. I want to talk about a little bit of your children's television work because I'm super interested in mm-hmm. it. One of the things I read as we were 
talking about doing this. I, I remember that you have an autistic son and um, and I was reading one of these stories that was, came out during COVID was about the extra challenges that being in lockdown and having all the disruption of the pandemic, yeah. the extra challenges involved in, in having an autistic son. And in that context, I noted somewhere that you'd done this thing for Sesame Street. So I looked at the Sesame Street thing and I thought, oh, we should play that on a podcast. You know, that'd be cool. We'll play that because let's see, I don't know. I'm just thinking about kids, your kid. I don't know the, the, yeah. what the connection was. My <laughs> wife who says to me, she's like, you know, he did this thing for Noggin. My wife, oh, is yeah, my wife's yeah, an advisor yeah, yeah. for Noggin, right? So, oh wow, okay. So Diana's like, right. you know, you know, he did this thing for Noggin. You should check that out. I said, oh, what's it? She says, it's called Rhymes Through Times. You got to go check it out. Great. I, I, I basically threw away the Sesame Street because who needs to give Sesame Street more attention? <laughs> I want to play, play this little animated short. There was three episodes of this. You guys, yeah, did, we right? did. We did three episodes, all centered around Black History Month, and really amplifying some important figures in in American Black history. So this is one of them. This is a uh, written, performed, you know, conceived the whole thing. You're like, this is like your thing, right? They approached me about wanting to do something. I was like, yeah, it was a great idea. And we just roll with it. It's super cool. It's called Rhymes Through Times. And this is an episode about Thurgood Marshall. Let's uh, listen to this yeah. a little bit and then we'll talk about it. Now, around the same time, another hero arrived, an extraordinary lawyer, one of a kind, and he was smart, uh -huh. and he was kind, uh -huh. and he was brave, oh, yes. and Thurgood was his name, hey, he hey. knew that he could help to put an end to segregation, that kept children in separate schools across the nation, to fix this really bad rule, he used the law as a tool, so kids of all different colors could share a school, see, Thurgood was a hero, for you, you and me. And everybody, Ooh. he stood up for justice and equality. Uh, there's a little schoolhouse rocky quality to like, like I mean, just so. topically right yeah and it's musical it's hip-hoppy it's like schoolhouse rock meets hamilton for the modern age right? yeah did they approach you or is this something you like wanted to get involved because like I, I note there's like you're trying to do some stuff with the kids here is that like a goal of yours absolutely all of my work in the children's space came through freestyle of supreme yeah way back in i guess 2008 we were approached to do a proof of concept for bringing back the electric company and so all of us in Freestyle Love Supreme contributed to that. And Bill Sherman and I and Tommy Kale were the co-music supervisors. So we were writing all the music for this musical show. That kind of cemented me in the Sesame Lane and in the children's space lane. So I've been writing songs for them since that time. And I wanted to play in another sandbox as well. So we reached out to Nickelodeon on a general. And then they had an idea and linked us up and we wrote this and I'm hoping that we can go even further with this particular concept because it was super well received and a lot of fun to do a great thing to be working on during the pandemic to be sure. Yeah. You I know. mean, it's really, it's totally fun and, uh, and smart. All three of them are the, the episodes I've seen. They're all really, they're kind of great. It's nice to see kind of innovation in that space, right? There is great iconic stuff that's been done in, in the past, but to be able to see new stuff that kind of builds in the same vein, but is not just totally derivative of, you know, the famous stuff that exists in that genre right. is super cool. How is your son, by the way? How is it? <laughs> he's 16 now and he's, he's doing really well. He's been back in school for a while. He's fully vaccinated, which he was very, you know, excited and relieved to be having that experience. He's doing great. You know, every day that we wake up with him and see, you know, we, he's a teenager. So that part's not so great because we still get mono everybody gets a monosyllabic phase that they have to go through with their teen he's yeah. very emotional which every teenager is the magic sauce is, first is my wife and just her ability to reach him just to get down inside the quiet place with him and get him to express 
what he's happy about, what he's not happy about, what he's anxious about. You know, and the other part is just, I think, our ability to pivot. You know, we have to just constantly be attuned and, and tuned in and, and listen to what he needs for the moment. And he's just surprising us every day because, as all teenagers do, once they start talking, you really get a sense of what they're paying attention to. You, you get a sense of the conversations that you were having that you didn't think he heard, but he clearly did. And then now he wants to, you know, ask some questions or involve himself. It's, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful struggle. And however hard things are for us, that's nothing compared to what he's dealing with and what he's feeling every day. So we just try to, you know, get right in front of him and continue to build our relationship. He's an incredible kid. I'm glad the pandemic's over, though. Yeah, so be, is he. This is nice. I'm so sure. is I mean, he. he. He is. You guys are. Everybody is. I know we know it's not over, 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 but it's good that it's over pretty much. Um, yeah. I, I, we're going to take a quick break and come back. And we've we got to talk about Hamilton. Everybody stick around. Listen to some ads. Bear up with them. Then go buy the stuff that you know, is being advertised. <laughs> we'll be back with Chris Jackson after these messages. And we're back on Hell and High Water with the Christopher Jackson, hey. the man from Bull, the man from In the Heights, the man from Lion King, the man from Noggin, and most famously, the man who played the founding father of our country, the first president of these United States, George Washington. She does. A little musical you might have heard of somewhere at some point called Hamilton. We are going to do a little Hamilton deep dive here, but to start that off, let's listen to this amazing clip, Chris, of you and Lynn at the White House performing one last time for Barack Obama released during Obama's final days in office, although it was recorded a couple years earlier when you guys went down to the White House in 2016. So let's take a listen to that. I need a favor. Whatever you say, sir, Jefferson will pay for his behavior. Talk less. I'll use the press. I'll write under a pseudonym. You'll see what I can do to him. I need you to draft an address. Yes, he resigned. You can finally speak your mind. No. He's stepping down so he can run for president. <laughs> Good luck defeating you, sir. I'm stepping down. I'm not running for president. I'm sorry, what? One last time. Relax. Have a drink with me. One last time. Let's take a break tonight. And then we'll teach him how to say goodbye. To say goodbye. You and I. So that's a moment, right? Uh, you know, when clips of that uh, were released right before Obama was about to leave office and, and Trump was about to take office, uh, importantly, a lot of the comments were like, choke back your tears while you watch Lin-Manuel Miranda and Christopher Jackson perform one last time at the White House. And, you know, I think a lot of people did, in fact, have to choke back their tears uh, watching that performance. So I wonder, you know, how emotional it was for you personally to be in that room in front of that guy with your close friend doing that performance of that song in uh in real time you guys have a relationship with obama that uh and the white house kind of an important part of the whole hamilton story is the interplay between the cast and uh obama's cast so to speak but for you and lynn to be there performing together you know that song you provide i don't know how many times hundreds thousands tens of thousands i don't know uh, no but it's a lot <laughs> uh, yeah just you know what was the emotional experience like for you of doing that there and then thankfully we had done it so many times because you kind of have to let your muscle memory kick in to get you through 
all of the things that can race through your head prior to, you know, getting up behind that mic. We did the sound check. It wasn't clear whether or not he was going to be there. I guess if we were really thinking about it seriously, we have like, of course he's going to be there unless, <laughs> unless he's doing presidential shit. You know what I mean? We, I was the last song that we rehearsed and, and they placed the placards right in front of me, right as we were finishing the, the rehearsal. And uh, that was crazy. What people don't know about that day, there were 150 local high school students. They had all taken part in sort of like this prelim thing. We have a thing called Eduham, which is a six-week intensive encouraged to, you know, not only learn about Hamilton, but also to inspire performance and writing pieces that the kids themselves prepare. And so we got up there and I'm sitting on the dais with Pippa and Lynn and, and David, and I'm watching First Lady Obama look at this whole room full of kids and say, your president and I love you and we want you to succeed. How profound it is to hear the First Lady of the United States express that kind of sentiment to a room full of kids. Crazy. Yeah. We then go rehearse and then we're leading workshops. I led a two hour workshop, Edgeham workshop in the grand foyer of the White House in front of the piano that Lynn first introduced the world to with Lack to Alexander Hamilton, the opening of our, our show. Then we take a break, we have lunch. We go in in the, in the late afternoon to perform, which is an hour long performance, command performance. We get to that song. I'm singing this song with Lynn one of my best friends in the entire world to Barack and Michelle Obama and, and vice president Biden and Dr. Biden, we get done. What you don't see in that clip after the song is over with is that I'm, I'm ugly crying. Like it's just the release of the day. It is the, the weight of the mantle of honor that has been placed on us because we were asked by the president of the country to come and be with kids in the white house. That's the special part of that day, which is the craziest yeah. thing. And then the, the last and, and the most enduring memory of all of it is the fact that, you know, I was, my mother was finishing college. She was getting her teacher's degree. And when I was starting kindergarten and, and prior to that for a couple of years. And so during the summertime, my, my grandmother essentially raised my sister and I, there was no shortage of inspiration in that house. There was no shortage of admonition and instruction in that house. But that woman always told me that I could be anything that I wanted to be. And I know that she dreamed she could have dreamt that I was anything doing anything. She never dreamed that I would be here. Yeah. She never thought that I would be standing in front of the first black president, playing the first president as a black man underneath the 12 foot Stuart portrait that hangs in the East room of the white house. In that moment, she put me there. You know what I mean? And you, I just yeah. became so aware of the legacy of what I come from and who I come from and feeling full well the weight of, I did okay. I'm doing all right. <laughs> the work's not done. That's a moment. But we yeah. all know as performers, we're creating moments, right? So there's almost like a, a casual thing that we have to kind of put on in order to get from moment to moment. Yeah. But there was nothing about that that wasn't just spectacular and overwhelming. And I'm, I'm telling you, man, Daniel Watts, who was one of our company members, he saw me go, I, it was all I could do to stand up. I just could not uh, conceive of an experience that would be so, just so full. And, you know, we were all exhausted. <laughs> yeah. That was our day off. We drove down to DC. We performed, we drove back. We were back on stage the next night, you know, we're all fried. But man, I don't think my feet touched the ground for quite a while after that. When did you guys record the <laughs> thing with Obama? The 44 Mick, 
you know, remix where he yeah. did the he, he did, the, did Hamil the, the, the Hamilton portion of Washington's farewell speech in one last time. Yes. Yeah. That was Lynn's last Hamil drop, he was calling him. Yeah. The essence of Hamilton was always the beginning of the origins were always supposed to be. It was going to be a mixtape with various rappers coming in and playing certain roles. Right. And singing certain roles. And then it became the show. But the last thing that he wanted to do was to make it one last time and do a gospel arrangement of it and include president obama and so we we flew down to a recording studio in maryland and bb winans was there and so that was later though right i i know it was released in december 2018 yes this was later right. and recorded after obviously after obama had left office yeah and what was that like it was it was so chill and it was like you know in the midst of all the crazy that was you know unfolding in real time across yeah. the river like he came in like a dude who didn't have to run the country anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, one of his strengths is that he's very engaging and he's just very endearing. And um, he had a great fondness for us and it was reciprocated. You know, it was just a special kind of thing. And it, it went off. It was great. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing that the sequence of these things, and again, it goes back to your previous answer when you were talking about the weight in some ways of, yeah. you know, I mean, look. I mean, they're just like us presidents, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not gods or whatever, but it's still like right. you think about like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to fly down. And, you know, now that we have the relationship with Barack Obama, the first African-American president, now sure. we have the relationship. Of course, we can just do a little remix of a song that I made famous on Broadway where I'm just going to we'll hang out with the ex-president. He'll do it for us for this thing. I mean, come on. You know, it's we like, spend time makes together. Your fucking head explode. Of course you think it about does. It, right? Every just think it about does. it. There's no question. But, you know, like he owned a part of us. Yeah. Because Lynn chose that to present to him. Yeah. And then the president was like, yeah, good luck, bro. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. Poetry slam night. Great. Yeah. You know, nobody knew it was going to turn into that. Sure. You know, it's like the, the show turned the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist turned the show and it just kept feeding itself on each other. And he was a big part of that. And I think part of it, you know, is also, I mean, it's, it was really funny. I'll tell you the story. When the show came out on television, when the, the when the when Disney Plus when the movie version of it came out last summer, some people came over. We were in pandemic mode, yeah. right? Hunkered right. down, right? Uh, but we had a few friends who were in our pod, very small, right? One close family right. friend of some friends of ours came over. Mother, father, daughter, goddaughter of mine, brilliant young woman, just graduated from college, so 21, 22. And we were like, hey, we're all going to watch Hamilton when it, when they when it first starts streaming on Disney+. Plus. And I said to my friend's daughter, like, who loved Hamilton, who was, a, it was insane. It was at St. Anne's in Brooklyn when it came out and knew Hamilton backwards and forwards and yeah, knew it yeah. all. It was, she was like yeah. a, just the biggest Hamilton devotee in the world. And right. she got over to the house that night and she's like, you guys are going to watch this fucking Hamilton thing, are you? And we're like, whoa, what happened? You used to love that show. She's like... I don't know. It's like total Obama artifact. That's back when we all thought that racial progress was possible. And like now we know oh, to be it's like an artifact. It's like so from the, that's, cynical. Yeah, I, I, well, totally. I mean, again, and I, I got my back up about it but, <laughs> because I'm like, I don't really think you really have a mature enough appreciation of how it right. works. But put that aside. But it is interesting because your comment sparked it in my mind because I do think you said the thing about zeitgeist. Yeah. And the reality is that in a very deep way, I think that the shows, its merits as musical theater are are obvious. Yes. But there was something about the fact that it rhymed with its time. It would have had a different reception, and I do not think would have been the phenomenon that it was if you had put it out two years into Donald Trump's administration. You had to have an atmosphere of kind of hopefulness and hopefulness of a certain kind for the show to be received the way it was received, I think. I mean, again, probably would have still been a very successful musical, but not quite the phenomenon that it was. Very much of a piece 
with the moment it lived in, I think. And that's another way in which you're tied to Obama in the way that people think about the show. There's no question about it. I think, but, but all art is that. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, all art that gets out of the, the studio is meant to like be perceived in different ages, you know what totally. I mean? And received in different ages. So that's, you know, it says a lot about us, how we perceive things. It says a lot about the art, yeah, how it's perceived. So we talked a little bit about how your part evolved over time in, in the Heights, your role at you know, Benny, how Benny changed mm -hmm. since you worked on it with Lynn and Tommy over like a lot of years. Right. And so I'm curious about whether the same thing, well, obviously the same thing happened, but how it happened with George Washington, how did that part evolve over time? I know that one last time was not always one last time, right? The original uh, incarnation of that song. I'm going to really like buff my Hamill and trivia bona fides here. One last time was originally one last ride, I believe. And uh, the song was more about the whiskey rebellion than what it turned out to be. I, I don't think I've ever heard it, but I love the idea that you guys, there was a song in the original about the whiskey rebellion. And, and, you know, so that that song changed. And I'm, again, I'm curious about the ways that Washington changed over time as, as a part. Famously, there was again, more Hamilton deep dive trivia here. This is a real deep cut that hardcore Hamilton fans will know. Floating out in the internet somewhere are the original casting notes for Hamilton that Lynn did. I, I love these. And they're all like basically Broadway characters paired with famous hip hop yeah. stars with famous rappers. So it's like Aaron Burr yep. was supposed to be Javert meets Most Def. Hercules Mulligan was Buster Rhymes meets Donald O'Connor. Madison was supposed to be RZA meets Zach from A Chorus Line. I love all these. King George was Rufus Wainwright meets King Herod from Jesus Christ Superstar. And there were ones for the women too, right? Uh, the Peggy Schuyler, uh, Michelle Williams of Destiny's Child. Um, these are all great. And then there's the one that was the, the note for George Washington, which was John Legend meets Mufasa from The Lion King. And, <laughs> and on top of that, I then later heard Lynn talk about how he also thought of Common as one of the role models, what he was kind of thinking of, what he had in mind for George Washington. So that's a lot of heavy shit to lay on someone, right? You're supposed to be some combination of John Legend, Common, and Mufasa. <laughs> uh, uh, I wonder <laughs> how that struck you. And, and again, importantly, kind of how the role kind of evolved from when it was first handed to you to what it was by the time the show came to its conclusion, or at least by the time you left the show in, yeah. in 2016. There was a process during In the Heights where... I sort of assumed a team leader-esque role. There were a lot of people who hadn't done Broadway and I hadn't done much more, but I'd been in a long running show. And I positioned myself to just always make sure that my door was always open, that my ear was always tuned to the concerns of any of the cast members. And I did my best to help them move through the space. And it's it's because it's a complicated type of life that you move into with Broadway shows. I was George Washington before Lynn was gonna be Hamilton. They decided that I was George Washington while we were still doing In the Heights on stage every night. So there's a lot of just about the essence of that character that they saw in real time happening in me at a very early point in our relationship. Washington assumed the role of general at the same age that I started performing in Hamilton yeah. off Broadway. I wasn't able to be a part of the two workshops where they actually put the thing up on its feet. On both occasions, I was in a rehearsal for one show, and then when it came back around, I happened to be in tech for another show. So much so that I, I tell the story that Lynn came by on a lunch break with me when I was at Circle and Square doing this play, and he says, listen, man, you know, rehearsals are going well, but I need to remind you, I made a suit, and it only fits you, but I made you a suit. So when the time comes, you're going to need to get over here and put it on. <laughs> so... That was always the plan. It evolved off Broadway. It 
it took the whole run off Broadway because once you set a show, you can't continue to tinker. You can do it in previews, but you can't do it once it's opened. Right. And they knew that it wasn't fully flushed out yet, but they didn't have the opportunity for me as the actor to walk in and say, you know, two years prior and say, let can we maybe look at this or this doesn't quite work or can we, you know, tweak? I didn't give them that opportunity. Our, the circumstances didn't allow that to happen. We all knew that we were just going to be telling the story as best we could. And then when we made that move, they would have more time. Yeah. They could kind of open the book back up and kind of tweak some more. And the day that they handed me the song one last time, it was the day that they included when Lynn wrote the vine and fig tree moment in the song. Yeah. It was the day after the South Carolina church shooting. Oh man. So the idea of sitting under your own vine and fig tree and no one shall make you afraid. Micah four, four is the scripture. Yeah. That's the moment where Washington happened to collide with Chris Jackson. Wow. And that's the moment where it all made sense. The sense of loss in every word that these men uttered, the sense of contradiction that me in my safe space in New York City in a really nice rehearsal studio, you know, getting ready for a Broadway show of all things. And there were people out there in a very real way who were grieving and our nation was grieving. And that was a part of that song. There were moments that allowed me to incorporate as a black man, the loss felt by the contradictions in this man's character. And something that I wrestled with every single night on stage because it that's what made the story complete. The process of doing the show and taking all of these people down off of pedestals and bursting all of these marble busts and just seeing really flawed people with grand ideas with no idea how to reach them except to write them down and hope that someone later would figure it out. And here we have figured it out, but we can't act on it yet. You know what I'm saying? Because it just takes more courage than I think most people in Washington can afford to have. You know, there's no doubt uh, it definitely takes courage. And I don't know about most people in Washington, but I definitely think uh, this particular George Washington has some of that courage. So listen, God bless you. Um, it, was, it was great to see you. <laughs> you too, uh, man. I feel like at least we got like, we haven't really gotten a chance to catch up because this is still a little too performative and we're still here on, on these screens. No doubt, but, no doubt. Um, in no the doubt. not too distant future, we will be uh, face to face and holding a beer. Yes, sir. Like, and we'll have another conversation where we won't talk about COVID. Like the one on February 15th of 2020, we'll like be Ooh, like, talk about that. How about that? Hello High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Christopher Jackson for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us nicely, please, on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roden handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer and Christian... Fidel Castro Russell is our executive producer. 